Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number one in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, February the 1st. First, I talk to Brett Shanley, the CEO of Study Loan Australia, the first private dedicated provider of student loans in Australia. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And then I talked to economist Stephen Kakoulis, looking at what's ahead for economists this year. But first, let's talk to Britt Shanley. Britt Shanley, you are the co-founder and CEO of Study Loan Australia. Tell us about Study Loan. We're the first dedicated private provider of of student loans here in Australia. Okay. And and, and we believe strongly in the need for a blended funding model because fundamentally the demand for education has already increased rapidly since the 1990s where the current scheme at both higher education and vocational funding is is built on an income contingent scheme what that effectively means the government aka the taxpayer provides the funding to pay the universities and and to pay for the education and then the person who benefits and consumes the education repays once they're earning over a certain amount of money now that system is beginning to break down because the number has gone from around 15 percent of the population in the early 90s here in australia to now well over 70% of the population going on and doing some form of education post-18. I believe strongly that that figure is set to increase exponentially in the next few years, particularly now as we move into a digital modern economy, which means you can't simply get a degree or a qualification and then say, right, that's me qualified and set for the rest of my life. 
you need to be training in a lifelong manner every couple of years to ensure that you stay relevant and stay up to date with modern means of production, modern means of delivery and modern technology. So that's where I believe you cannot have just the taxpayer being the sole burden of the debt for student education. But, Brett, I mean, the reality is uh, we have HECS and we have FeeHealth, and they're a pretty decent loan scheme for most students. Well, um, well, that HECS, I would agree, yes. But for how long can that continue? FeeHealth, I'd say no, um, not, not necessarily. So FeeHealth there, if you're a non-Commonwealth supported university, there's a 25% upfront loading, and it increases with indexation. So reality is that's actually a really expensive loan. I think the government in this country has done a great job of educating people into debt but not educating them about the debt in which they're taking on. So just to give you an example, if I took out course using fee help, um, it would cost me, uh, sorry, it cost me, uh, the, course, the, course, the cost of the course was 10 grand. If it, and I pay for that upfront, it would cost me 10 grand. If I took it out through the government, it's day one, costing me 12 and a half instantly. Now, let's also talk about all those people that are permanent residents, but they're not Australian citizens. Therefore, they're not eligible for fee help, nor are they eligible for HECS. And then there's also those people who are international students. And then further to that, like the educational sector is more than the higher education sector, but it is also in, in the vocational sector, which is vitally important for a modern, diversified workforce, because not everyone is sitting in an office. There are plenty of jobs out there, and this is where I firmly believe you're always going to need builders, you're always going to need electricians, you're always going to need aged care workers, nurses, because they are practical, hands-on jobs and roles and going and getting a degree for that isn't actually that useful it's far better to be having strong industry links where it, it, it's more practical and hands-on that is a scheme that was called vet fee help at a federal level that got replaced in january 2017 with a scheme called vet student loans that effectively pulled 2.4 billion dollars annually off the table and it, it significantly reduced down the number of educational institutions that gain access to those funds for their students and then further to that, they don't support the government now is not providing any financial assistance for, for diploma or de below, uh, below type certificate level courses, which I think is a real shame. And then further to that, even where you can get access to the, the newly established 500 million, which sounds like a lot, but it's not. Um, they put caps on courses like nursing, which is a great example, where they put a cap of 15 grand that the government can lend. But yet, if you actually look at the average cost of the Diploma of Nursing across Australia, it's more like twenty, twenty-one thousand dollars $21,000. So there's a significant shortfall, which leads to people either foregoing and not doing the education or using irresponsible, unfit-for-purpose lending practices like payday lenders or credit cards where there's horrendous interest rates and no defined loan term or any protections for the student. So there, there's, there's a number of areas and there's a number of problems with the current system. Study Loans is here to provide options. We're an alternative to the government system or a supplement to the government system. Plus, I haven't even mentioned the new type of education, which is, I think, very exciting and is only ever going to get bigger. And that's companies such as General Assembly, which are delivering UI, UX, data science courses, digital marketing courses, which are actually all about delivering short, sharp courses that actually give you practical, hands-on, immediate skill sets, not, not just a piece of paper that says I'm qualified by an academic. And that, that's things that you can use immediately in the workforce you know, as you're learning, which is very different to the, the, the old system that we, we've currently seen. What, if I need help from study loan, what would you offer me? 
Yeah, so we, we offer a, a financial assistance currently, given we've only got the one product, but we offer loans from $2,001 up to $15,000, and we provide loan terms from six to 48 months. Now, our product has been specifically designed for education and education only. So what our product does is we only provide finance to people applying for a loan at institutions that we have audited and conducted due diligence on. So we only work with educational institutions that have a strong history of compliance, high completion rates, and strong job outcome rates. Now, what our product does is rather than the student having all the money paid to them for them to then pay the educational institution, we provide the finance directly to the approved educational institution on the approved course. That way it removes the fraud risk of that money being used for unintended purposes such as going to a holiday to Bali or going down the pub and drinking it. No, ours is a specialist loan product. Now, what we do, and this is, bear with me here, imagine a course costs 10 grand. Let's then imagine the course is a pizza. So like every good pizza, you need to slice it up. Now, what we do is we say to the student, we're going to guarantee you the full amount of the funding of the course if you meet our eligibility criteria, but you don't need the full amount straight away. So what we're doing is we're going to slice it up. Now, we're going to release each slice as you need it. So go go and start day one and consume the first slice. That might be consisting of doing the first unit or two. Once you've, you've completed those units and, once you've ke- and you're only paying principal and interest on the slice that you've activated, then you can then re- release the next slice. So that has a couple of benefits. What it means is the student is only paying for what they consume. The student also has complete control and visibility over the loan. And second of all, it means that the student is actually paying some down whilst while studying, but far less than if they'd activated the whole slice up front. But it also means that we're driving alignment between us and the student, but then also us, the provider of the finance, with then the educational provider of, of, of the education. Because what we're doing is we hold back 15% of the value of each slice from the educational institution and only at the point where they've got the student to completion does that 15% who we've appointed perpetual as the trust manager to security trustee to act on behalf of the trust will then release that fund. So what that essentially is, is making sure that the educational providers are only putting people forward to courses that truly are motivated and truly have the ability to complete. Now, you're a startup. You've only been going for a few months. What sort of response have you had? overwhelming so i didn't just roll out bedley on um like last week or last month and decided to do this this is a project that we've actually been working on for over 18 months um and you know i come from a finance background but i've also been lucky enough to work across a range of um education businesses in the accredited and non-accredited fashion but also uh, a number of other education technology businesses so you know this is something that we've we've been working on for a very long time we, you know, I wrote the business plan in August 2016. Um, we then gained our license in September 2017. So we are a holder of an Australian credit license regulated by ASIC, the Australian um, Securities and Investment Commission. Um, now, what we've had since launch, so we've really, really only been live four or five months. We've already working, we've already now partnered with 50 educational institutions funding over 350-odd courses, but we've actually bit, had over 400 educational institutions apply to join the platform but because of our criteria of only working the right group 
we've only selected 50. Um, now, we have been inundated by students. So we've had, since November, over 600 student inquiries. Um, now, we've probably written about 100 loans of the 600. And, and many of the reasons why we haven't been able to provide the loans for the other 500 is because um, we haven't released products yet, which, which we'll be able to service them. So, for instance, at the moment, as per our Australian credit license responsibilities, where we must be a responsible lender, we can only provide finance to people that have the ability to service the loan and then not also be placed under undue hardship. So one of the things we often find on a daily basis, and I get like four or five phone calls a day, where... The student is over 18, tick, they're an Australian citizen or permanent resident, tick, um, and then it gets to, are you earning over 20 grand per annum? And they say no, and that's where mum or dad then picks up the phone and says, okay, well, can I take out the loan on their behalf? So we're about to release a parental product, which should significantly increase uptake, and we also would like to look at introducing an international student product as well, given the difficulty that they have in, in terms of actually finding finance because the price is so much more significantly higher than domestic students but because they are an international student they, they have difficulty accessing credit markets which means you're likely to grow quite significantly over the next year or so uh, hoping so ho hoping to leon um so the team has already gone from um two full-time employees back in january to now um having nearly 12 full-time staff we've got business development managers in uh one in uh, Queensland servicing the Queensland market, one in New South Wales servicing the New South Wales market, and one in Victoria servicing the Victorian market. Now, our aim is to have around 200 to 300 educational institutions, but the right type of institutions with, again, high completion rights, rate, rates, high job outcome rates, and high um, uh, solid history of compliance, and then kind of accessing to around about 1,000 courses. We want to have that on board by the middle of this year, of which we will have completed our Series A round, of which we will then be spending significant money from the round on growing brand awareness and 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 and, and driving the loan book value. So we should all be keeping an eye out of a study loan. I, I hope so. Um, we're also um, I can't give you too many details. We're we're very close to closing a fifty mil debt facility with a major financial institution, which certainly will be putting us on on hopefully. Uh, a number of the, the major newspapers here uh, and will certainly be putting a big kind of flag in the ground to say we are here, we've arrived, um, watch out. Well, Brett, it's been a delight talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, Leon. Really, really appreciate your time. And now let's talk to economist Stephen Kukoulis. Stephen Kukoulis, we've had all sorts of forecasts about the global economy and the Australian economy for 2019. What's your view about it? Look, I think it's clear that uh, we're kicking off 2019 on a softer note for both the global economy and for Australia. And that's not to say things are heading to a hard landing. Far from it. But when we just look at the data flow over the uh, New Year period, both from China through the Eurozone and even in the US, which is probably a little bit more resilient than those other two economies, it's clear that growth will be slower in 2019 and 2018. The $64 million question, of course, is how much slower will that be? But if you look at the various business surveys, the ISM surveys, they're all tilting to substantially weaker growth. 
that's forced the European Central Bank and others to say, well, hang on, we're not going to keep, uh, we're going to keep monetary policy very, very easy. And even in the US, where there's low inflation, signs of a, of a topping out in growth, if we can call it that, that the Fed is very close to the end of its tightening cycle. So we've got the global economy just easing back a notch. And the big question for economists and markets is how slow will it be? But at this stage, it looks like just a period of slightly weaker growth. Now, here in Australia, it's a bit different because we've had Gosh, unrelenting news on the housing market, both in terms of prices, which are very, very weak, uh, housing construction, which is certainly tapering off as well. And we've got to see what happens in terms of this tightening in credit. It's harder to get money. And I think that's not just the mortgage holders now. There's a lot of evidence that small and medium businesses who rely on their on their residents, their property, as collateral for their business loans are also finding it harder to get credit. So we've seen car sales you know, falling very, very sharply in Australia. And even the NAB business survey, which came out earlier this week, was you know, one of the sharpest falls since the global crisis. So in a nutshell, slower growth. We've just got to wait and see how much slower it's going to be. Uh, right. I mean, of course, uh, Scott Morrison has come out this week saying his, his government will deliver 1.25 million jobs over uh. the next uh, few years. But uh, that would suggest the economy would have to grow at an extraordinary rate because he's saying they'll all be full-time jobs and most of the growth, the growth has been in part-time jobs. Yeah, indeed. Look, the 1.25 million jobs will be very, very difficult to achieve. And in fact, if you look at the... The MyEFO budget forecast, which came out in December, so the latest Treasury forecast, if you like, and they had GDP growth in excess of three percent. They had one and a half percent employment growth. Um, if they, and, and that's quite a good scenario. It's actually probably stronger than the consensus would have it uh, be right now. But even with those good numbers for the economy, you're only getting nine hundred and fifty thousand jobs. So, look, he, he, maybe he's got something up his sleeve in terms of a bit of pump priming for the economy. But at this stage, it doesn't look likely he's not going to achieve that. And if anything, as we were saying just a minute ago, if we get the next round of retail sales numbers, if we get the next employment number being a little bit softer, then, of course, that puts a serious question mark over the Treasury forecasts uh, that are going to be have to uh, be updated in the budget, which is now scheduled for the 2nd of April. Indeed. And what does that mean for the Reserve Bank of Australia? Oh, look, I think they've got to have an about face. Uh, they, have, they have to really seriously look at cutting interest rates because we do know inflation's very low. As we just discussed, the economy's weaker than they thought. In fact, the, the latest RBA forecast, now they're going to update them uh, at the end of next week, I think it is, in the Statement of Monetary Policy. They had GDP at 3.5%. Now, with the, the December quarter looking soft, we know the September quarter saw GDP growth of only 0.3%. It's going to be really difficult, if not impossible, to get three and a half. So they've really got to have a serious rethink of their strategy. Look, they're made up of mere mortals. They're human beings who look at economic models like the rest of us. And they're sometimes wrong. And it's not necessarily a criticism of the RBA, but I think this time they, they were just a little too optimistic. And, you know, and look, they're pragmatic. They'll probably come out and say, look, we got it. Well, they won't say it in these words, but we got it wrong. We were a bit too optimistic. We've revamped our forecast schedule, revamped our inflation outlook. So whether it's enough to force them to a near-term rate cut, I doubt it. But I think their bias, um, the next move in rates is up, sort of rhetoric which they've been going on about for some time now. I think that will have to change. But uh, the, the, one of the big issues is what's happening in China. I mean, no one's talking about a hard landing there, but uh, we are talking about a gradual deceleration, and that will affect the global economy.
Oh, indeed. Well, China's obviously a huge part of the global economy now, and of course, the biggest consumer of commodities, which of course comes back to the, our Australian economy here. It's very important to us. China's slowdown is interesting because while the GDP numbers um, in a headline sense are still quite good, you know, still over 6%, it's not bad economic growth. Uh, but nonetheless, that is the slowest rate of economic growth in China in about 28 years. They are slowing down. And that's forced their authorities, including their central bank, the People's Bank of China, to cut what they call the reserve ratio. It's a slightly different monetary policy setting to us in the Western world. But nonetheless, it's effectively an easing in monetary policy. They're a little bit concerned now about their economy perhaps slowing a little bit too abruptly, that some of the decline in capital expenditure, some of the fall in industrial production is impacting them. And of course, part of the reason for that is just a slowdown. But the thing that's still lingering over the global economy, I suppose, is the Trump tariff wars. Yeah, look, they've, they've sort of taken a bit of a backseat in recent weeks, but they're still simmering underneath the surface. And given the erratic nature of this um, interplay of um, regulations and like, it wouldn't surprise me if that popped up again. And that would hurt the Chinese economy. And, of course, that would come back and hurt us here in Australia. Well, those uh, trade talks kicking off this week aren't going to go off to a good start uh, because you've got Huawei being charged with fraud. Uh Yes, not good uh, diplomacy. Now, I don't know enough about or anything really about the intricacies of the court cases there and how Huawei works. In fact, I, I know nothing. However, I do know that it's a high-profile issue that's um, consuming diplomatic circles. When that happens, it tends to go back into the political circles and that retaliation, including to Canada, interestingly, the, the mild-mannered Canadians have been caught up in this whole process too. You know that there's something brewing and it's not good. So to the extent that that forces a bit more of a heavy-handed approach from not only the Chinese but the Americans and others in the global economy is, again, just another serious question mark and, you know, a really serious question mark about whether we're going to have further dislocation to trade, to capital markets and the like as these um, tariff and trade wars uh, escalate. And, of course, uh, the, all attention, too, is also on the Fed. Now, uh, the Fed has backed away on from plans to raise interest rates three times this year. Uh, but uh, where do you see it happening? I think they're about to pause. Yes, I think that's a very good summary because the the numbers in the US seem to be suggesting a topping out of growth. And in fact, the interesting thing is, of course, the, uh, the Fed, like most central banks, does target inflation. And while inflation was picking up through the bulk of 2018, and that was the reason why they were tightening policy, of course, just in the last couple of months, inflation started tilting back lower. Not to say that inflation is going to be free falling or anything like it, but it's just not the problem that's there. And you've got to remember there's a couple of things happening in the US economy. One is the tightening of policy, that's of monetary policy, I should say. That's, the, that's obvious to everybody. The other thing is that the Trump tax cuts, which had a big impact on the economy in late 2017 and early 2018, are now fading. All of the, that money's been reinvested, it's been spent, or whatever the case may be, and there's no more fiscal policy stimulus coming through the pipeline. So if you think about just the drivers of a strong US economy and they were easy fiscal policy and until a year or so ago, easy monetary policy, both of those things are reversed. So the Fed will look at that. They're being, they're being very pragmatic. So I, th I think you're right. We, we may get one more rate hike, but after that, I, th I think they're going to be on hold and they'll just want to see how um, 
the prior tightenings are impacting on the economy and just how this inflation performance is going, because it looks as if inflation's going to be very low through the course of 2019. Indeed, indeed. And, of course, the other big issue, too, is that now we have all sorts of political turmoil you've got at the highest level of the United States and other advanced economies like the partial shutdown of the US government, street protests in France, and you've got an election in Australia, and that's going to feed it's, investor anxiety, won't it? It, it does. Look, and there is policy uncertainty when there's changes of government or political, um, uh, as you said, turmoil or ructions occurring. You know, what, what do governments do to respond to the turmoil, be it the issues that you mentioned, Brexit, of course, is huge, but our election here too in Australia is very, very important. The what I think it doesn't stop businesses from investing or consumers from spending, but it's just this little—it's a marginal impact. And um, you know, when you're talking about the difference of an economy growing at sort of two and a half or three percent, it doesn't sound like much, but it actually is quite important in terms of its implications for employment, for inflation, and these sorts of things. So if you just get a small proportion of the population, both consumers and businesses, scaling back their spending and investing because of policy changes, political turmoil, then all of a sudden the softening of the economy that we're talking about at the very beginning just becomes a little more uh, acute. And if we get to the middle of the year, it's not you know, impossible to think that you know, the growth momentum globally and here domestically will be you know, considerably weaker than certainly Treasury and the RBA and even the Fed and others are, are assuming for the global economy. So, in summary, we're saying, while we're not looking at a recession, we're looking at certainly slower growth, both globally and in Australia. And yeah, look, we have no, to get rid no, of that. Correct. No recession. I don't think that's um, likely. Yeah, we, we just don't have the conditions, even though housing's very weak. We still have a, a decent export performance and there still is public sector infrastructure spending. But if you crunch through the, um, the various components of GDP, stick them into your spreadsheet and then hit, so have a look at the bottom line, it's going to be much more likely that GDP growth through 2019 will be sort of in the 2 to 2.5% range, 2 to 2.5% growth, pretty modest uh, rather than the three to three and a half that Treasury and the RBA were thinking. And that has implications for the unemployment rate, as we mentioned, probably not falling below 5% in, on a sustained basis, and inflation probably staying below 2%, which is, uh, for the RBA, too low. Well, Stephen Coolis, it's always a delight talking to you, and thank you very much for, for talking to us at the beginning of this year. Uh, thank you, Leon. All the very best. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, Mr Trump might have agreed to reopen the US government on Friday, 35 days into a shutdown he had forced in order to demand $5.7 billion to build a wall on the US-Mexico border. But his shutdown cost the economy $11 billion, according to a new analysis from the non-partisan Congressional Budget Office. Although most of the damage to the economy will be reversed as federal workers return to their jobs, the CBO estimated $3 billion in economic activity is permanently lost. Overall, the CBO projected economic growth will slow this year to 2.3% compared with a 3.1% rate last year as the benefits of a new tax law begin to fade. The loss was driven by a fall in productivity from furloughed government workers and economic anxiety which spread from the shutdown into the business sector. The deal Mr Trump struck with Congressional Democrats included no funding for the wall. And it's a temporary measure that expires in three weeks which means there could be another shutdown in mid-February. Although this shutdown has ended, little agreement on Capitol Hill will likely weigh on business confidence and financial market sentiments, the S&P said in its news release. President Donald Trump said another government shutdown is certainly an option, 
as he expressed scepticism that Congress would reach a deal to fund the border wall he requested. Trump also said he doubted he would accept less than $5.7 billion for the border wall, nor would he agree to grant citizenship for the Dreamers in exchange for wall funding. And don't expect American and Chinese trade negotiations to get off to a good start this week. America's Justice Department has accused Huawei of misdeeds, including obstruction of justice and technology theft. The Chinese tech giant was also accused of defrauding four banks into violating sanctions on Iran, on which basis Canadian police last month arrested Meng Wanzhou, Huawei's chief financial officer, on behalf of American authorities. On January the 28th, the Americans formally requested her extradition. Huawei denies wrongdoing. Now, at first glance, it appears prosecutors have little concrete evidence of the gravest suspicions that Chinese spooks use Huawei gear to eavesdrop or that long-rumoured ties to the People's Liberation Army are real. But if they can prove trade secret theft and bank fraud, Huawei will have plenty to fret about. That could mean a devastating ban on American firms selling it technology. And TPG Telecom has cancelled its plan to build the nation's fourth 4G mobile network. It's a dramatic move that the telco blamed on the federal government's ban on Huawei equipment from use on 5G networks. TPG, which provides fixed-line broadband services, announced in early 2017 that it would build its own network of mobile towers to compete with the likes of Telstra and Optus. TPG has since sought to join forces with Vodafone Australia in a merger that is currently under review by the country's competition and consumer watchdog. The main equipment vendor for TPG's mobile network is Chinese telecom giant Huawei, which is the principal target of Australia's ban. According to TPG, the reason for using Huawei equipment to build out its network was because it allowed a straightforward upgrade path to 5G using more Huawei equipment. But... Since the government announced a prohibition of Huawei equipment on 5G networks in August, that upgrade path is now blocked. And Australia's subdued inflationary pressures were in line with expectations in the final three months of 2018. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, headline consumer price inflation, or CPI, rose by 0.5% during the December quarter, leaving the increase on a year earlier at 1.8%. Both the quarterly and annual rates were higher than the 0.4% and the 1.7% rates expected by financial markets. And Australian business conditions deteriorated sharply late last year, tumbling by the most since the height of the global financial crisis. Business conditions now sit below their long-term average for the first time since January 2016. The National Australia Bank's Business Conditions Index contained its broader business confidence survey, which tumbled two points in December, down sharply from 11 points in November. The fall over the past six months suggests a significant slowing in the momentum of activity in the business sector, especially from the highs seen earlier in the year. Making the decline all the more ugly and worrying, the deterioration was relatively broadly based, be it by location or sector. The drop in business condition lines up with other indicators such as motor vehicle sales and building approvals pointing to a sharp loss of economic momentum. Anecdotes also point to a very weak December for retail sales. With Commissioner Kenneth Hayne delivering his final fateful report this Friday, bankers are now asking just how far he'll go in extirpating the venal practices and customs of the industry that have been allowed to flourish virtually untouched for decades. At the centre of the feverish speculation, they're now asking three key questions. Will the Commissioner announce flagship reforms that are bound to transform the critical home lending and financial advice markets 
by changing the rules for paying mortgage brokers or banning vertically integrated firms? Will his key report recommend that criminal charges be laid against some of the country's most senior bankers and some of its most venerated financial institutions, bring a brutal end to the benign decades-long regime under which feeble regulators only dreamed of imposing the mildest of penalties for misbehaviour? And will Commissioner Hayne maintain his seemingly hardline position on the subject dearest to bankers' hearts, their pay packets? We heard evidence about billions of dollars ripped from customers, but will anyone end up behind bars for it? The Royal Commission is an inquiry, not an inquisition. It can't press charges itself, nor can it fix or award compensation or make orders requiring a party to a dispute to take or not take any action. Decoded, that means they weren't set up to fix existing problems, more to prevent those problems reoccurring. But the Commission can make recommendations to the Office of the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions, and from there it's up to him. But mortgage brokers and smaller lenders are set to escape a major crackdown in the Morrison government's response to the Royal Commission into Financial Services because Treasurer Josh Frydenberg wants to maintain competitive pressure against the big four banks and keep credit flowing to the economy. Watch this space. Now, the Morrison government is now more focused on protecting its electoral chances than the nation's finances with claims it's going on a pre-poll spending spree based on a short-term spending boost in tax collection according to Deloitte Access Economics. Now, Deloitte said in a quarterly report out on Tuesday that Scott Morrison is looking to buy back disappointed voters, with the government sitting on $9.2 billion worth of tax cuts and handouts that were included in the December mid-year budget update, but not announced. Deloitte Access partner Chris Richardson said the government had promised $16 billion in extra spending and tax cuts in the past six months. That's the biggest short-term spend by government since Kevin Rudd in 2009 in the depths of a global financial crisis. Mr Richardson said, with the budget in a reasonable condition on the back of strong global growth and a surge in company tax profits, the Morrison government had made a decision to woo back voters with taxpayers' catch. This meant that the government has been busily taking decisions that add to spending and touting taxes, thereby worsening the bottom line rather than repairing it, he said. Mr Richardson said it would not just be the Morrison government repeating, in his words, our oldest budgetary mistake of promising new spending in an election campaign. He added that Labor would also make pledges which would eat into a permanent improvement in the budget. And in the first economic speech for the year in the lead-up to the election, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison has pledged the creation of 1.25 million jobs over the next five years. And he's pledged to eradicate net debt within a decade. It's a move that would require paying down more than $350 billion over the next 10 years. And the world's biggest litigation funder has set up shop in Australia to get a slice of the booming class action business, including some high-profile cases stemming from the Banking Royal Commission. Burford Capital is funding the Quinn, Emmanuel, Urquhart and Sullivan class action against AMP. Burford's backing of the AMP class action pits it against other household brands, including Slater and Gordon, Shine Lawyers and Morris Blackburn, that are competing to profit from a slice of the Royal Commission's legal fallout. With several competing legal class actions against AMP around fees for no service, AMP's share price has collapsed. It's had its reputation and market value smashed by Royal Commission revelations, including the fee for no service scandal. And Australia's biggest energy companies have warned that the coalition's proposed big stick powers to break up electricity companies would decrease investment and increase prices. The Morrison government introduced the Energy Market Misconduct Bill in December, promising that the threat of breaking up power companies would force them to pass on savings to consumers and refrain from activity that manipulates prices or substantially lessens competition. 
But the Energy Users Association, which represents large industrial and commercial energy users, told the Senate's Economics Committee it was very concerned the bill would have the opposite effect. Its views echo those of the Australian Industry Group and the Grattan Institute. In December, energy companies warned the bill might not be constitutional, and Liberal MPs have raised concerns internally that it's too great an intervention in free market. And supermarket giant Coles has partnered with Uber Eats. It's delivering ready-to-heat meals to consumers, and it's bringing together two major brands to bring convenient options to time-poor customers. From today, customers can order from a range of delicious ready-to-eat and ready-to-heat meals from Coles Pagewood, delivered right to their door. And the team at Coles will pick orders from supermarket shelves and hand them to the Uber drivers who promise to deliver to customers in less than 30 minutes for a $5 delivery fee. And finally, BuzzFeed has announced plans to slash its Australian workforce. But confusion surrounds exactly how many roles will go. 25 BuzzFeed Australian news staff have been given redundancy letters. And there's confusion about how many jobs are being actually slashed worldwide. BuzzFeed is facing staff cuts of about 15% worldwide. About 40 people work for the organisation down under. Founding editor Simon Crerar tweeted 25 roles would go, but then backtracked saying the actual number was only 11. BuzzFeed Australia employees had known there'd be cuts since last Thursday. And that's it for this week. And next week I have a terrific interview with Steve Layton, founder of Sofa Brands. Through his innovative new co-venture spanning Australia, Italy and China, he's making Italian luxe furniture available to the many by delivering top quality, heritage-rich Italian sofas for one-third of the usual price. It's a fascinating interview, giving insights into what drives entrepreneurs. In the meantime, you can tune in to Talking Business on Twitter at TalkingBizBLZ or on Facebook. And leave a comment if you want. Looking forward to hearing from you. Take care, be good, and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 